0: So let's ask God to help us as we uh, come to his word. Our gracious heavenly father, we uh, thank you for your word. We thank you that it's the word of the living God. We thank you that it reveals uh, you to us so that we can know you and that it reveals your son as our saviour so that we can trust him. Help us to understand it, to believe it, and gracious Father, help us to conform our thoughts, our words, our actions to your truth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's, it's going to magically happen. Well, not we don't believe in magic, I take that back. Through the wonders of modern technology, there will be Yes, look at that. That's great, isn't it? Now, it doesn't feel uh, like it after such an unusual year, but there are actually only five Sundays to go before Christmas, including this one. And in the lead-up to Christmas, uh, we're going to look at Ezekiel. We're returning to Ezekiel. Now, why? You might especially ask that if you think Ezekiel is all judgment and gloom and baby Jesus is all sweetness and light. You know, think of Ezekiel and baby Jesus like oil and water. Well, it's because if you're going to understand all the fuss about Jesus' birth that's been going on for centuries, if you're going to understand who Jesus is and what he's done and if you're going to understand why people are looking forward to Jesus' return, you need books like Ezekiel. You need the big picture of God's purposes and promises as the living God has revealed them in his prophets. Seeing the big picture of God's promises, you can see the wonder and greatness and goodness of what Jesus has already done and you can see the wonder and greatness and goodness of what believers are looking forward to when Jesus returns. Now, Ezekiel 36.16 is a good place to get back into Ezekiel because it starts with a summary of God's dealings with Israel in Ezekiel up to this point, before it then goes on to speak to us of God's promises. And those first few verses, verses 16 to 19, highlight a problem. A problem not so much for Israel, but for the living God. "'The word of the Lord came to me, "'Son of man, when the house of Israel lived in their own land, "'they defiled it by their ways and their deeds.'" "'Their ways before me were like the uncleanness "'of a woman in her menstrual impurity. "'So I poured out my wrath upon them "'for the blood that they had shed in the land "'for the idols with which they had defiled it. "'I scattered them among the nations "'and they were dispersed through the countries. "'In accordance with their ways and deeds, I judged them.'" Now, the image Ezekiel uses in verse 17 to picture the effect of Israel's sin may not be one we would choose. It's drawn from the Lord's instruction on what is clean and unclean in Leviticus 15, where both men and women are made unclean by bodily discharges. But the point is clear. Israel, by its behaviour, had defiled, made unclean the land, so it became an unfit place for the Lord to be, for the Lord's holy, and the holy and the unclean cannot come into contact with each other. The Lord highlights two morally defiling acts, bloodshed and idolatry, both blatant rejections of the Lord as Israel's king, clear expressions of Israel's disowning their covenant relationship with him. And while the Lord's been very patient with Israel over centuries, he's now in Ezekiel's time poured out his just anger on them. As Ezekiel's audience, the exiles in Babylon know only too well the Lord has acted by destroying Jerusalem and scattering the survivors, including them throughout the nations. God's judgment was their lived experience and they knew, verse 19, that it was just. In accordance with their ways and their deeds, I judge them. The judgment they experienced, the wrath they endure, was exactly what the Lord had said would happen in the covenant, Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, exactly what would happen if Israel abandoned the covenant. So God had acted justly and righteously, in sovereign power in judging them, power that brought nations like Babylon to do his will, to execute his judgment. The Lord had been doing exactly what he said he would do. Now, such justice and righteousness, such faithfulness to his word, such might as is seen in his judgments, well, that should have caused the people who witnessed them to be in awe of God, just as his judgments should cause us to be in awe of him. But God's just action had done the opposite amongst the surrounding nations. It had actually created a problem for God's reputation among them. Verse 20. Israel's coming as exiles to the nations profaned my holy name. God's name is his revelation of himself. What God has said of himself, whether it's speaking of himself as God Almighty to Abraham or revealing himself to Israel at the Exodus as the Lord, the great I am, or to Moses on the mountain as merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving but also a just judge. His name here also has the sense of his reputation, how he is known amongst the nations in his creation. God says his name is holy. That is distinct, separate, different from all the names of the other gods, different from the name of every created being. And his name is holy because the Lord is holy, the only God, different from all that's created. The Lord is uncreated, having life in himself, sovereign accountable only to himself, dependent on no one, unchanging, immortal, almighty. He's holy. To profane what is holy is to make what is holy into a common thing. In this case, to make God out to be like all the other gods with No difference from the idols, even lesser than the idols of the surrounding nations. To profane God's name is to cause people to think that the Lord is not the God he has revealed himself to be. Howard, Israel's going into exile, profaned God's name. For Israel's exile was really a testimony to God's faithfulness and power. Well, it was because the nations interpreted what God had done through their own defective understanding of reality. They were saying, these are the people of the Lord, and yet they had to go out of his land. And in saying that, they were saying that the Lord was either not powerful or not good. You see, the nations saw gods as local powers tied to a geographical space. There was a relationship between God and land and people. The God of the land was meant to keep his people safe and give them victory against their enemies. That was how that God increased his prestige, his reputation, exalted his name. So if the Lord's people had had to go out of the land, it could only mean one of two things, uh, that the Lord was not powerful. The gods of Babylon, like Dagon, were more powerful. They were thinking the Lord's just some lesser deity, easily dispossessed of his property. Or it means he's not good, a God who would accept his people's sacrifices but then cruelly abandon them in their time of need. That profaning of his name, that blackening of his reputation was both offensive to God and disservice to the nations. It's offensive for the Creator, the God of gods, the Lord of lords, to be compared to thought of as some dumb idol. And if the nations believe that about the Lord, how will they ever come to know the true and living God, the God who will judge them, from whom they need to find mercy, the God who alone can give them life? Verses 17 to 20 tell us Israel's sin and God's just judgment of it had created a problem for God's reputation. And in a sense, all sin does. If God does not judge sin, he appears powerless to uphold uphold his rule, unconcerned with justice and righteousness, indifferent to the harm and destruction sin does. And if he acts in judgment, and if there's judgment alone, well, that makes God look like the God of death, not life of curse, not blessing, the exact opposite of God's reality. The nation's response to God's just judgment of Israel, the people to whom he had revealed himself, in a sense just raises bigger questions. Will human sin always cause God's reputation to be maligned, cause him to be seen as not the God he is, some kind of lesser God? Oh, and will human sin always cause God's purpose of life and blessing in his creation to be frustrated? The Lord says in verses 21 to 23 that He's not content to let His reputation be trashed, not content to let human rebellion dictate who He is seen to be in His world. God has concern for His holy name. And the wonderful thing we will see is that God's right concern for His holy name, His determination to be known as the God He is, will mean life and blessing for sinners, people who rebel against him. The wonderful thing is we'll see that God's concern for his glory is actually our hope, our only hope. Therefore, verse 22, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, to vindicate the holiness of his great name. He will show to all that he is the God he says he is. And he makes clear why he will act as he does. He acts for the sake of his holy name. God will act because he wants the truth about himself known and known clearly. So it's not for Israel's sake. As rebels, covenant breakers, they have no hold or call upon God. There's no reason why God should have any more dealings with them at all, for they have shown themselves persistently faithless and ungrateful. It is not for your sake, the Lord says. Now we need to hear that. You see, humanity, we we flatter ourselves by believing that there's something intrinsically valuable about us that obligates God to act for our sake, that somehow God owes us, or we're essential to his plan, or there must be something good he sees in us. You see, we're determined to keep ourselves at the centre and even God's action should revolve around us. But the reality is God doesn't need us. He could create a thousand universes teeming with intelligent life in a moment. Actually, what's to be seen in us is not goodness, but Rebellion, ingratitude, wrath-provoking sin that defiles his good creation. You know, in ourselves, we're as attractive as corpses. If he loves us, and the scripture says he does, it's because he is love, not that we are lovable. God will act for the sake of his name, his reputation. Oh, and he tells us what will be the outcome of his action. The nations will know the truth, know that he is who he says he is, the Lord, the living God, not an idol or a fiction of our imagination. And he tells us the means through which he will vindicate his name. Amazingly, he says he will do it, verse 23, through sinful Israel, when through you I vindicate my holiness. God's concern for his holy name That means Israel will continue where they deserve to be finished with entirely, that they'll live where they deserve death. But what will God do in the face of their persistent rebellion, persistent sin, to vindicate his name? Well, he's not going to change. He's not going to start to tolerate their sin. He won't change to accept that they'll never be perfect. I mean, sinners have been wanting God to change for them all along. But we're having this conversation because God has shown he is committed to his justice and righteousness. So if the Lord won't change, what will he do through this sinful people to let the world know that he is the God he says he is? Well, he tells us in verses 24 to 30. And as you look over them, note the repeated I. It's seven times in English in verses 24 to 27, more in Hebrew. You see, this is something that God is committing himself to, something that he personally and alone will do. There's no conditionality, no if-then, if-you-then-I. He doesn't let it depend on them and their response at all. He says it will all depend on him. It is just I, I, I. And in these verses, God promises to personally reverse both the cause and effects of their covenant unfaithfulness, their sin, to vindicate his holy name through making them sinners fit to live with him in his presence. He will, verse 24, gather them and bring them back into their own land, a land they'll possess as his people. He will, verse 25, deal with the offences of their sin he will cleanse them and particularly from the offence of their idolatry a sin from which they could not be cleansed under the law of Moses and cleansed they would no more be defiled unfit for God's presence and no more making the land unfit for God's presence. And God, verse 26, commits himself to make them into covenant keepers, people who could enjoy the blessing of relationship with God, enjoy all the blessings of that relationship with God. I'll give you, he says, a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you. And I will remove from you your heart of flesh and give you a heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules. Heart and spirit, verse twenty six, together embrace the whole inner person will, emotion, thought, our inner life. Sin is so ingrained that for Israel to become covenant keepers, they need a whole new person, a whole new life. Now think about that because if that's true of Israel who had God's good law to whom the living God had revealed himself, well, it's true for all. If we are not going to continually disobey God and provoke his judgment, if we're going to be able to live at peace with the living God, we need a new heart and spirit to humanity's problems not on the outside in our environment it's actually in us in the core of our being our heart our will that's the source of the problem that's what our lord jesus said matthew 15 out of the heart come evil thoughts murder adultery sexual immorality theft false witness slander these are what defile a person You see, to live with God, it's not enough for some superficial change, not changing this or that behaviour, giving up this, starting that, stopping getting drunk, starting going to church, stopping watching porn, starting to treat your wife or husband well, stopping lying and starting to tell the truth. Now, those things are all good and we may be able to keep them going for a while or longer. But there'll always be another sin, maybe less obvious—pride, greed, covetousness. We need a new heart and a new. Spirit. My name is Joanne, and I'll be leading us in prayer today. Inside out, more than change, a whole new source of life, and that's true for us all. Let me say, boys and girls, including those of us who have Christian parents. Being born into a Christian home doesn't make you a Christian any more than being born in a garage makes you a car. Being taught the Bible doesn't make you a Christian. It might just make you a well-informed sinner if you reject it. Every one of us needs that new heart from God, needs his spirit if we're going to be his people. Without that new heart, well, if we're in a Christian home and we're trying to Please, our parents will always be trying and always missing the mark and in the end we'll either become hypocrites, outwardly conforming but full of secret sin or we'll give up entirely as we feel we can never make the grade. We all need that new heart and Ezekiel gives us a picture to bring home how desperate our need is, a picture Clarissa spoken about. See Israel's present heart was a heart of stone, dead, unresponsive, completely incapable of loving God, willing to do his will. Israel's painful history demonstrated that over and over again. And so God promises a heart transplant, a stony heart replaced by a heart of flesh. That is a living, responsive heart, a will that can respond to God to do His will. And that new life, says God, verse 27, will have a completely different source God's spirit within. This life is sustained by God. It doesn't come, can't come from any human source. It can only come from God, for only God can direct and give his spirit. And that spirit will move Israel and us to live God's way, for its orientation coming from God is to God. And what will be the outcome of this great work of God, this giving new life to dead people, a life that can do God's will? Well, the outcome of God's work will be the relationship between God and his people that God always intended. Verse 28, you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. The outcome of God giving this new heart and giving his spirit will be God's people living in God's place, in God's presence at peace with him. What God had said would be the chief blessing of the covenant with Israel would be realised. That's what God had said, Leviticus 26. I will make my dwelling among you and my soul shall not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God and you shall be my people. More actually... This relationship is what God had promised Abraham and his descendants, Genesis 17. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your offspring after you. Verse 8, I will be their God. See, because God is committed to demonstrating the holiness of his great name, The the promise he has made to Abraham will be fulfilled, fulfilled by God alone despite the rebellion of Abraham's descendants. And that's a promise, remember, that looks to the blessing of all nations, a promise that is God's response to the spread of human sin from Adam on. And we get a picture in verses 28 to 30, a picture especially powerful for an agricultural people who had no food security, of the goodness of that relationship of having God as your God. They will, verses 29 and 30, be secure, enjoy abundance, peace in their land. The Lord, the God who has revealed himself to Abraham and his descendants, you see, is the creator. He is the Lord of nature, the God of heaven and earth. All creation serves him. To be at peace with him is to be at peace with creation. In fact, the Lord goes on to speak in verses 33 to 38 of that time of restoration and cleansing in terms... Well, let's speak of new creation. Its fruitfulness will cause it to be compared, verse 35, to Eden. And in verses 37 to 38, we see that as was commanded by God in Genesis 1, the people will be fruitful and multiply. The land will be full of life, life at peace with God, expressing the blessing of God on his creation. These prophecies are pointing to a new creation when God acts to vindicate the holiness of his name through saving his people, saving them from their own simple heart. These promises in Ezekiel are great promises, comprehensively addressing all that needs to happen for God to have a people of his own, all that needs to happen for Israel, for humans, to be in a relationship of peace with the living God, where we are secure, where we can flourish in his presence. So when they're fulfilled, what will be the impact on Israel and the nations? Ezekiel thirty-six thirty-one. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways. The fulfilment of these great promises that will bless Israel will humble Israel. They will actually now see how good the God they rejected is. They will see how good God's way is. And with that new heart, they will delight in God's will. And seeing this, they'll see how wrong they were not to trust him and how vile and unjustified their disobedience. They'll see how perverse their heart was that would not listen, that constantly turned from God to themselves, from right to wrong, from life to death. They'll see that and be ashamed. Now, that won't interfere with their enjoyment of God's work in and for them, only heighten their gratitude and wonder. But it will end their boasting in themselves as they boast in and rely on God alone. You see, grace does that. And when God acts to vindicate his holy name through them, That's what Israel will have experienced. Grace, getting the new life they did not deserve in the place, in place of the death they did. Grace that actually every believer in Jesus experiences. When we get that new life from Jesus in place of the death we deserve, grace humbles us. And what will be the impact on the nations? Well, verses 36 and 38, they will know that the Lord is God. They'll know he's the Lord, the living, the only God. <laughs> the fulfilment of the promises will demonstrate comprehensively that the Lord's no dead idol. He speaks and fulfils his promises. He judges people, yes, and he can save his people, save them so completely that they would never fear his judgement again. The nations will see the Lord's almighty, the giver of life, that he is for life, not death, blessing, not curse. He is merciful and gracious. And they'll know then that, well, that if they keep opposing the Lord, judgment is certain. And if they turn to the Lord, they can find hope of life. These are truly great promises God speaks but they were spoken in the 6th century BC. That's a long time ago. So has the Lord kept them? What, for example, happened to the exiles? Well, Israel did in the next generation go back to their land at the end of 70 years of exile as God had promised through Jeremiah. But sin, as we see in the books like Ezra and Nehemiah, sin's still a problem and they still live under pagan rule promises not fulfilled. So were these promises all hype? Is God just good at PR? You know, a God of spin, not substance, doing a little and making it sound great. No, these prophecies always looked beyond the return of the people to the land of Judah at the end of their exile. They were always looking for more. The language of new creation, of the gift of God's spirit of a new heart tells us that. And this will be true of all Ezekiel's prophecies that we'll look at in the coming weeks. They are looking for more. The Lord Jesus expected Israel's teacher Nicodemus to know that when he spoke with him on that night of new birth. Remember that conversation Jesus said to Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. How can a man be born when he's old, said Nicodemus? Can he enter a second time? into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And Jesus went on in that conversation to say in verse 12, if I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, he went on to say that that talk of being born again of water and the spirit of the necessity of that new birth was talk of earthly things. That is, things already revealed and accessible to everyone. Now, how could Jesus say that? It's because he's talking to Nicodemus about what God had already promised in Ezekiel 36 of cleansing and the gift of the spirit. He's saying that God must cleanse and God must give new life if anyone is to live in God's eternal kingdom in his presence of peace with him. Just as Jesus taught like Ezekiel that the heart was the problem, so he taught that we must have new life from God, a new heart and a new spirit. You must be born again. But Jesus taught and did more. He said he was the one who would give that new birth. He was the one who would give the spirit to all who trust him and in giving the spirit, give him or her the life of the age to come, eternal life. (coughs) 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 Jesus said in John 7, (coughs) 37, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. Jesus in his gospel tells us that he is God come amongst us to do what God says he alone will do. Give us new hearts and a new spirit, his spirit. That is, give us eternal life. Life in relationship with God that starts now and will endure forever. Now that's big, isn't it? But even more stunning is how Jesus said he would do it. Going on in John 3, Jesus says to Nicodemus, Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus will bring this new birth by his death on the cross. This is for those who believe he's God's king dying for our sin on the cross. They will receive eternal life. You see, in Jesus' death for sin, there is cleansing, (coughs) that cleansing that must happen if the holy God is going to not just dwell with us, but in us by his spirit. Jesus, through his death, fulfills these great promises in Ezekiel 36. Jesus, the son of God sent by the father, is in his life, death and resurrection, the Lord vindicating the holiness of his name in the sight of all nations and telling us that the nations coming to know that he is the Lord will mean life, not death, forgiveness, not judgment, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. You see, in Christ, these promises in Ezekiel come to include us, you and I, Now, that is a very big thought, and if it's unfamiliar to you, get in touch with me or another Christian, you'll know. You know. But God's determination to vindicate his name means you and I, sinners, idolaters, can be saved. The promises of God in Ezekiel are no hype. God speaks them, and God is wholly committed to fulfilling them for his holy name's sake. And he does this through the coming of Jesus, his son. And he will fulfil all he has promised when the Lord Jesus comes in glory because it's not yet Eden, is it? So some questions to close. Do you have that new heart that God says we must have if we're to live in relationship with him? You can't be God's person. You can't belong to God's saved people any other way. So have you been born again by water and the Spirit, been cleansed by Jesus and been given the Spirit by the living Lord Jesus? Now, the Lord Jesus will do that for all who repent and believe, all who confess Jesus as Lord, and they're not. He'll do it for all who believe that he's died for their sins. Trusting him, believing he's been raised from the dead... You confess your sin to him and ask him for forgiveness and his spirit and he will give you forgiveness and his spirit for that is his promise to all who believe the gospel. So those who repent and believe need not doubt. You know, sometimes when we grow up in Christian families, we know we've repented and believed. We know that Jesus is our Lord and we live trusting him. But, you know, we can still doubt that we've got that new birth that we've got the Spirit. If that's you, let me remind you of the good promise there in Luke 11 where Jesus said, What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So do you have that new heart? But secondly... Are you grateful God is zealous for his holy name? Are you glad to be humbled, to hear that God has acted in sending Christ not for your sake? You should be. If God's love and grace to us is to be depended on by us, if sorry, if God's love and grace to us depended on us, something in us that obligated God to act for us, some goodness, potential or real, some usefulness, potential or real, you and I could never be secure. We could lose that goodness or fail in that work and then we couldn't feel we could rely on God. But God has said he acts for his sake, for the sake of his reputation, to be known as the God he has said he is that he acts to save sinners for his glory. And that's good. He has made our salvation dependent on him, on him being the God he is. It was all I, I, I remember. And in the cross and resurrection, we see that nothing stops him from being the God he says he is, not Satan, not death, not our sinfulness. So God making it depend on him means we can rely on him and his grace totally, even as we feel more and more the shame of our sin. And we can know death and curse will not be the last word in the universe or in our lives because God is the God of life and blessing. So are you grateful that God is zealous for his holy name? I have to ask that because sometimes Christian salvation can be presented as if it's all about you your life, your fulfilment, your good home, your happiness. Now, thankfully, that is not the case. It is all about God and his glory. And because God is the God he says he is, you and I, trusting him, are saved. Now, if God's saying it's not for your sake I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, is a strange thought to you. Grapple with it until you rejoice to hear God say to you, it's not for your sake, but for the sake of my holy name. And if that troubles you, get in touch, because your security and joy is in God being the God he says he is. And finally, believer, are you zealous for the holiness of God's name? You yourself. If you love God and love people, you should be concerned for the holiness of God's name, for his reputation amongst the nations. And Jesus said that's what we should pray for, our first request, hallowed be your name in the Lord's prayer. Now, hallowed be your name is actually sanctify your name and that's taken from Ezekiel 36, 23, where God says, "'I will sanctify my name.'" Jesus is teaching us to pray for God, to act, to vindicate his name as he has promised to do in Ezekiel. He's praying. He's telling us to pray that God would vindicate his name by saving. And for us to pray that, well, to pray that prayer is to pray that people will come to know the truth of God through knowing the truth of Jesus And we're included in that prayer as we pray. We're praying that we would relate to God fully convinced of the truth of his revelation of himself. We should be zealous for God's name. Pray, sanctify your name. And zeal for God's holiness should dictate the way we live. We should want to live holy lives as his holy people. The purpose of what God promises in Ezekiel is that he would have a people who would do his will from the heart and that should be us. The Apostle Paul, speaking of similar promises in 2 Corinthians, says, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. So you and I, if we're believers, should not tolerate sin in our lives and his presence should grieve us for when we sin and say we're God's people, we are profaning God's name by associating him with our sin, suggesting that he tolerates or is indifferent to sin or that the power of his spirit in us is not enough for us to put sin to death. Zeal for God's name should dictate how we live and zeal for his holy name should make us speak often and clearly of Jesus, for it is in Jesus that God has vindicated his holiness in the sight of all. It's in knowing the truth of the gospel that people really know the truth of our great God, know for sure that he's no idol, but the God he says he is, living, almighty, just and righteous, merciful and gracious, the God who keeps his promises, the God who is for life, not death, blessing, not curse, the God worth all our trust, all our obedience and all our praise.